0: Open off and Skyly Century stayed in the gate. There's Bo Rogue being set alight immediately by Cyril Small and racing to the lead. But Vaux won't give up. He's still in front. Groucho's grabbing him now. Groucho coming at Voro. Don't play, getting a rails run. Bo rogue in front. He's got a heart as big as himself. He'll win Vaux! This
1: podcast rogue. is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing, and the High Gang Group.
0: The Australian Turf Club and Racing New South Wales proudly present the Championships 2022 commencing at Royal Randwick on Saturday, April 2nd. This elite programme will be highlighted by four Group 1s, three of which had their beginnings in the mid 19th century. The jewel in the crown is the star Doncaster, boasting prize money of $3 million. Co-features will be the $2 million Bentley Australian Derby, the $2.5 million T.J. Smith, and the time-honoured english size produce stakes for the two-year-olds who were just warming up at the end of the Golden Slipper. Throw in the New Haven Park Country Championship Final, the Chairman's Quality, the Witten Stakes, the Adrian Knox and the Carbide Club, and you can see it is a magnificent race day. Saturday, April 2nd, Doncaster and Derby Day at Royal Randwick. 22 Caulfield trainers were deeply disturbed in 2018 to learn that they would be required to relocate by the year 2023. The Melbourne Racing Club advised that a new long-term lease had been brokered between the Caulfield Racecourse Trust and the Victorian Government securing the use of Caulfield as a racing centre for another 65 years. A special clause in that lease stipulated that the entire racecourse reserve would be redeveloped to provide recreational facilities for the general community. Caulfield trainers were originally given five years to vacate, later they were offered a financial incentive to fast-track that departure. In the dawn light of Wednesday, December 1st, 2021, for the first time in over a century, Caulfield was silent. For trainers like Colin Little, who was born and reared a stone's throw from the racecourse, it was a morning of sadness, a time to reflect on the end of a magnificent era. Colin took 10 horses to his new base at Pakenham and it was business as usual until a bizarre sequence of events reshaped his immediate future. I've got Colin Little on the line and Col, in saying good morning. Let's get the bad news out of the way first. What happened at Pakenham? <laughs>
1: um, morning, Johnny. Well, look, I'd had a unit that... Bayside at uh, Black Rock, and once they closed Caulfield, I went to live there. Um, to get Packenham is called Packenham because it's the name of the original Packenham racecourse, but it's really near It's a long way past Packenham. Mm. And once I was living at Black Rock, I had to get up at 3:30, leave at four to get the Packenham about quarter past five. Mm. The traffic is horrendous. Um, so. I just couldn't cope with being there every morning, but all my staff, not that there was a lot in these days, uh, relocated to Nganargoon, including my uh, trainer or fellow trainer, Matt Lindsay. But uh, about some time after we first moved there, our our second rider fell off and the horse jumped on him and cracked the vertebrae.
2: Mm, Steve Steve Harper, was it?
1: That's right. He'll be okay because there's no separation. But he's still on compo now. Mm. But my number one rider and uh, fellow trainer, Matt Lindsay, had been with me a long time. And I was probably keeping it going for Matty. Mm. But uh, he'd struggled with a bad back. And he was working through that bad back for a couple of years because he was the number one work rider. And uh, funnily enough, I was actually – on the GAN going from Adelaide to Darwin on a trip that I'd always wanted to do. And mm. he rang me and said, look, uh, I've just got off my last horse. I'm on the ground. I can't move. Oh, dear. And he's uh, back had just completely given out. He'd put up with it for two years and worked, worked around it. As I said, bought a Pilates machine. But mm. – and so we are a bus company without a bus driver and uh, that was the end of it that day. So there was nothing I could do. Mm-hmm. I was sort of in the middle of Australia but it was obvious that that would be the end and, uh, you know, we just dispersed all the horses in the next couple of days. So, you know, it was something mm-hmm. I was contemplating but it brought it forward.
0: Yeah. Some very high-profile stables had to vacate Caulfield. Price and Kent, uh, Mar and Eustace, and there were plenty of horses between those two stables.
1: Yes, well, Caulfield in capacity was 550. A mm. um, couple of trainers, once we were told that we're out, uh, relocated early. But I, I don't know, there's probably 350 at least mm. that moved on that uh, 30th of November. And there was no training allowed on the 1st of December.
0: Mm. Would have been a, an eerie feeling at Caulfield on that morning.
1: Yes, it's a bit like a Morgan uh, because they've pulled all the running rail down and you know, all the training tracks have been sort of uh, left barren and bare. It just looks like a uh, site mm. now. Mm. But, you know, eventually they have great plans and a lot of money to relocate, relocate everything, including the mounting yard. Yeah. You know, I can't get my head around that. And the mounting yard is up somewhere near the turn into the straight now.
0: Goodness me. We'll get used to it, Colin. You get used to anything. <laughs> Your whole life had revolved around Caulfield Racecourse and the training precinct, and it must have been an enormous wrench.
1: Well, yeah, as you say, yeah, I was born at Caulfield and sort of riding work a little bit before school when you, you know, you wouldn't be allowed to do that now. But yeah, I was riding a little bit of work and uh, on the off chance I might have been able to. Be a jockey. My father was a jockey, so I was riding a pony around there, falling off every morning. (laughs) Uh, But you know, eventually, I did a very short, sharp apprenticeship. Uh, You know, obviously, everyone says that weight caught up with them. Whether it was lack of ability, or weight, I'm not sure. Probably both. But uh, anyway, I got out of it and went into the building game because Mum said you have to have a trade. So I was became a chippy. But in my 20s, I started to get a horse, play around with one horse, and one became two. And mm. it was that case for a long time. But um, eventually, having trained out of my parents' little six horse stable off course, as nearly everyone was, mm. I was able to eventually move into uh, the community stables on track. Mm. And we stayed there for a while, had some nice horses there. But my uh, luck of a lifetime happened when uh, Brian Ralph, who had the old Ken Hilton stable, invited me in to take half the stable because mm. that's sort of in the 80s when things are pretty tough. And I couldn't get in there quick enough because it was a magnificent old place, 100-year-old, mm. but 20 yards all under 100-year-old trees, magnificent old. Mm. and a barn that's 120 years old, Mm. one of the last remaining ones of its kind. So, you know, I went in there and uh, I always said, if you couldn't train winners from here, you can't train.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, let's just go back to the genetic forces that influenced your entire career. Your dad, Bill, was a jockey who rode winners in Melbourne and later landed a contract in India where, in his day, Australian jockeys were very much in demand, much like Hong Kong today.
1: Well, I I understand that. I never knew my father as a jockey. Mm. He was uh, injured in Calcutta, uh, had a bad head injury. But he explained to me in those days that the Maharajas wanted Australian jockeys and they'd give them a very good retainer to go there. Um, And I'm not sure about the racing, how strong it was, but it was certainly lucrative. Mm. And there's a few photos of jockeys in three-piece suits uh, sitting around uh, big dining room tables, silverware everywhere. Mm. And, you know, I think they were uh, really treated terribly well there.
0: Yes, and we'd be talking 1930s, I presume, Cole.
1: Oh, yeah, something like that, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, back But in it was a place
1: to be, apparently. It was, um, you know, if you could get there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's like trying to get to Hong Kong today.
0: Yes. And some of the Australian jockeys were fortunate enough to have contracts with the Maharajas of the era. Edgar Britt is probably the most notable. Edgar yes, spent well, he's 10 certainly years. in the
1: photograph, in the photo I've seen of my dad. Mm. He was one of the jockeys around the, uh, around the table.
0: Yeah, Edgar was there for 10 years under retainer to the Maraja of Baroda. He had a great time. He told me many stories about his decade in India. <laughs> now, when it was time for you to become an apprentice, you joined a trainer called Rod Turvey, but that was short-lived, Cole.
1: Rod, uh, yeah, Rod was a bit of ahead of his time. Um, he he took a contract to go to Hong Kong. I think Hong Kong was amateur at the time, but yeah. they decided to become professional, and um, they wanted uh, successful trainers from Australia. and Rod was one of the first trainers, certainly in my knowledge, and certainly from Australia, to go to Hong Kong. Mm.
0: Here's one that will surprise um, old-timers who are listening to this podcast. You finished your apprenticeship with Arthur Ward, a <laughs> former champion jockey and a very successful trainer later. I had no idea Arthur Ward started his training career in Melbourne.
1: Um, yes. Uh, speaking to you previously, I think you are a bit shocked at that. But,
0: I was, but yeah.
1: Certainly the case. Um, Arthur Ward started off, and my parents uh, had known Arthur and his wife, Mm. so I was advised by mum and dad to go there, and um, he certainly started off probably in the stables that uh, Rod Turvey had uh, vacated, Mm. certainly in the same area, Uh, and he probably came here because there was a very big owner called Sir Morris Nathan, Mm. and I think he was Lord Mayor and a very wealthy man, and uh, I think uh, he helped Arthur start off. I remember uh, Mm. standing in the queue one morning after Arthur had won a race, and there was probably ten of us there, and uh, Sir Morris went along and put some currency in everyone's hand. Mm. It was a big deal.
0: Mm. A stipend. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. You know, Arthur was uh, a grand old age when he made the surprise move to Perth uh, because he had family there and he elected to live his twilight years in Western Australia. He died there in 2015, Cole, at age 94.
1: Right. Yeah, well, he's a lovely man, a lovely man, and uh, he was good to me. And uh, But, you know, uh, the writing was on the wall that uh, Colin uh, – Colin Little was never going to make it as a jockey. Mm. Uh, I remember wasting uh, going to the bars for my first ride in the race. I couldn't oh, claim dear. the seven pound I think it was in those days. Yeah. I couldn't claim it, so the <laughs> mm. riding was on the wall.
0: You had six rides in races. Did you give a yelp in any of them?
1: Uh, well, probably the first one ever is is a, is a bit of a laugh because in those days – to get your license you just punch one out in the straight mm. in track work and that was it there was no such thing as trials mm. still would have a look at you and thought you're okay and bizarrely my first ride was at uh caulfield mm. so now you're not allowed near caulfield until you've had you know 100 trials and, and many rides but mm. that was the way it was then and we always rode in those R.M. Williams boots with a big instep. That Mm. was what it was, and I sort of walked out with uh, first time in my life with those little tiny jockey boots, flat-soled, patent leather, got in the barriers, gave it a kick in the guts and (laughs) went down the side like Clint Eastwood (laughs) without any irons.
0: (laughs) Oh, did you? Oh, dear me. (laughs)
1: Like John Wayne.
0: (laughs) Like John Wayne, yeah. There was a very famous horse trained at Caulfield, when you were growing up, with the imposing name of Lord. Trained by a man called Ken Hilton, Lord won 56 of his 80 starts. I beg your pardon, 56 of his 80 starts were at weight for age. He won 20 of them outright, and I think there was a dead heat there. He won four straight Memsey Stakes. He was Equine Royalty at Caulfield, wasn't he?
1: He certainly was, and I remember I'd be pretty young, but I was hanging around that stable. Oh, look, I would have been something like 13. I could probably do the numbers, but I'd be 13 or 14. And it was almost, you know, I suppose it's like is now. Like when Lord came out out, uh, onto the track, everyone just moved sideways and said, that's Lord. They were all in awe of him. Yeah. Um, Mr. Kemble, his owner, would never let him run in a handicap. He started – he was favourite every year in the early betting for the Caulfield Cup, but he never ran. Mm. Uh, He just kept him to wait for age races. Mm. And, uh, you know, probably alluding to the story that years and years later that I was lucky enough to get that stable uh, and my wife stayed – the house was terribly run down and – Uh, It had been called uh, Hilton's Joint, then Mm. Ralphie's Joint, and then it was in danger of being Little's Joint. Mm. And uh, (laughs) my wife wanted a better name than that because she decided to spend a lot of time and and a fair bit of money resurrecting, renovating the the house, the beautiful old run-down house, but she turned it into a bed and breakfast. Yeah. So she, she completely renovated it. Got up on scaffold and painted the uh, the ceilings, and uh, but it needed a better name. And we were thinking about it. And I just just vaguely remember this horse when I was a kid, how how they were in awe of it. So we we called it Lord Lodge, and that's where the mail comes now. Comes mm-hmm. to Lord Lodge.
0: You suffered a massive setback in 2009, Cole, when you lost Jackie. She'd been a well-known and highly regarded figure around Caulfield and throughout the Victorian racing industry. It was a tough time.
1: Yes, uh, Jackie had walked Kokoda and, um, you know, she must have had a brain tumour at that time but it wasn't evident
2: Mm.
1: and I was in passenger in her car. Not long after, she came back from Kokoda, and she put the left blinker on and turned right. Oh, dear. And I just looked at her, and I just thought, mm, something's not right here. And we took her to hospital, and they diagnosed a brain tumour very quickly at a great hospital, Epworth. And they did their best for her for the next 12 months, but um, she couldn't survive uh, the brain tumour.
0: Her talents, of course, were to the fore when she uh, renovated and transformed, really, that old house at Caulfield, which you tell me uh, will have a future under the heritage listing.
1: Yes, I think the stable and the house, they'll do something with it. They, They certainly can't knock it down. And I think talking to Jason Kerr, who was the track manager, but now he's been sort of elevated a little bit, to maybe look after the renovations and he tells me they'll, they'll flatten all the yards but they'll probably great, grass everything out the back and they're, they're not mm. quite sure what they'll do with it but they'll do something, whether it's a cafeteria or a museum. Yeah. So the house stays and so does the barn.
0: Good news. When you started training, uh, you had another job. You'd work a couple of horses in the dark uh, by dashing off to the building trade. What did you do in that role?
1: I was a tippy, a carpenter, Mm. I did a full apprenticeship, uh, came out in my early 20s and, you know, started to mess around with one or one horse or two horses. So, mm. you know, you're young, living on the smell of an oily rag, didn't matter, get up at three, work the horses, run off to work, come back after work, take it for a walk and a feed. And it just seemed like fun in those days. Mm. But it went on like that for some time. And, uh, you know, I was sort of getting nowhere really and uh, trained one winner or two winners. But, you know, training a metropolitan winner was almost like flying to the moon. Yeah. So I decided that this is not for me. But instead of retiring and giving it away today, I'll have a little think about it. So I jumped in the car, mm. drove straight through the surface paradise in, in 18 hours later on the beach for um, three or four days and made a decision that if I didn't train a winner – Mm. In in the next 12 months, I'd give it away. <laughs> so, you? Yeah. So um, I trained three. Yeah. So, so that was gave it. me the incentive to go on.
0: Your first winner was Sinatra at Turalgon. <laughs> what owner would call a filly Sinatra?
1: <laughs> I don't know. It's a long time ago, mm. a long time ago. But anyway, I do remember that. Was it was at Turalgon. I do remember it. I even think I had something on
0: it. Mm. Good. Your first city win remains one of your most indelible memories. It was a mare called Tune Up, and that special win, Cole, helped a very famous jockey of the day to win one of his 11 premierships. Um,
1: Well, a bit of a story there. I played a bit of squash down the Alma Club, a little... Club uh, where you could play a bit of squash and have a drink, mm. and uh, met a chap there called Noel Stewart and his sister bizarrely had inherited a mare and foal. So uh, they didn't know anyone in racing, and I was sort of sort of in racing. When they asked me to have a look at the mare and foal, well, the foal was really a uh, you know almost ready to be broken in. Mm. I had a look at it, thought it was a pretty good type, and I recommended they put it into work mm. with me. <laughs> of course, <laughs> <laughs> and it was my first metropolitan winner, mm-hmm. and uh, a week or two later, um, Roy Higgins was just getting to the end of his career. He was struggling a bit, but he was still neck and neck in the in the uh, championship jockey championship, and everyone loved Roy, and you know it was my great pleasure to give him a ride. And uh, he won on that little filly, and I think he won the premiership by one. Mm. And I always remember that because Roy is everyone's idol.
0: Tune Up was owned by a charming lady (laughs) called Joan Herman, who became a wonderful friend and supporter.
1: Yeah, she was my first uh, winner. She supplied the first winner and then... Uh, The mayor went off to true statement who Mm. seemed to have a bit of um, uh, kudos and uh, the resultant foal was a horse called Testimony. Mm. Um, Joan was struggling with the fees and and just told me early on that she needed some partners. So I think her brother went in and Mm. I I met a young bloke called Rod Fitzroy and Mm. I thought they might get on and I thought he might – Enjoy taking a share of a horse, and uh, so Joan and I and Rod Fitzroy had a great time because that horse won thirteen in town.
0: oh, oh he was and, an amazing horse.
1: Yeah, a yeah. lot of horse, not many win thirteen in town. And Joan had had a very, very sad life. Her husband had been in an accident, and he was he was just a bit of a vegetable in hospital. But she spent all her spare time looking after him, and we were able to sort of get her a little bit away from that, uh, and, you know, Rod and Joan got on famously and they were out to dinner and lunches all the time mm-hmm. on the back of testimony, mm-hmm. and they became great friends.
0: Well, he must have had a touch of freak about him, cold testimony, because he actually bled in the 1985 Futurity Stakes, but he came back to win another seven, he ran second in the Group 1 Goodwood Handicap at Morfordville and uh, he, he just went on and on forever. And as you said, 13 Metropolitan wins.
1: Yeah, he started, he was a three-year-old in the faturity and he started favourite and he ran furlong last and we were with him after the race. It wasn't just a bleed, it was a terrible bleed. There was three or four vets around him, they were almost holding him up and they didn't really think he would make it. He was in so distress they just thought he you know, he, he wouldn't make it. But anyway, he had a a long, long spell and came back. I don't know if he was as good um, later on in life, but he certainly, as you said, went on and won a lot of races. Mm. I think he won <laughs> of interest to you would be the fact that I think he won his second or third start at Caulfield twelve hundred meters mm. and they ran one twenty.
0: Good heckers. <laughs> Yeah.
1: So, I think the tracks improved a bit since then.
0: One twenty for six furlongs.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Now Cole, let's work from the top down. El Segundo was without a doubt the best horse you've trained with a record to prove it. Thirty-five starts, twelve wins, eight placings, almost four million dollars, and four group ones. The El Segundo Colin Little partnership was a natural progression in a way because you trained his mother, Palos Verdes, with whom you won ten, including a Group 3 Mannion Cup, a Group 3 Hobart Cup and a Baggard Handicap. I can remember calling her in that Mannion Cup at Rose Hill as though it were yesterday. Grant Cooksley was the jockey.
1: That's true. Um, She broke the track record there. She actually held three track records in Hobart, Mornington Cup, Minion Cup. I'm not sure if she still holds it in in, uh, in Sydney, but she held it for a long time. She's a very good mare. Um, took me a long time to work it out that um, she came into her own after Christmas. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. I thought she was a chance with a lightweight in the Caulfield Cup, but I could never get her going in winter. But as soon as mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. heated up. Um, it was 40 degrees when she won the Mornington Cup. It was very hot when she won the Hobart Cup. Mm-hmm. And the penny finally dropped that this filly just doesn't do well in winter. Mm. Uh, tried everything, but it just I couldn't get her going until everything warmed up. So mm. the following year we sent her to Brisbane um, to uh, uh, winter in, in uh, Brisbane, but she got something wrong in the float and she, you know, took a long time to get over it, and that was the end of the spring. Mm. But she was underrated. I think she was very good filly, and as I said, she broke three track records.
0: Mm. Maybe El Segundo was meant to come into the world. You had Palos Verdes in the stable at Caulfield, and Sydney trainer Clary Connors had stables in the same complex. He didn't have a spare box for a snippets cult, which had arrived at his place. And Clary got you to do him a favour. You put the colt in your stables and all hell broke loose. What happened?
1: <laughs> well, that horse had run in the Caulfield Guineas, but he'd started 50 to 1 and, you know, he was just an unknown horse but Clary didn't even tell me what he was. he just, could you look after this for a short time? Well, hmm. he was a colt, obviously. We put him down one end, but he just took a shine to Pellis Verdos and he was screaming <laughs> out there all the time trying to get at her. And anyway, I was on the phone to Clary all the time. Where, where, when's this horse moving? Mm. Clary, typical Clary. Oh, you know, the phone will be there shortly. Yeah. But shortly turned into about three or four days, and I was getting really worried. But mm. anyway, eventually he had to depart from the stables and say goodbye to Palos Verdos. But the horse turned out to be Pings, who yeah. turned went to New Zealand, and he caught up with Palos Verdes a few years later and the result is
0: El Segundo. Yeah, and coincidentally, some of the owners of Palos Verdes took shares in El Segundo.
1: Yeah, well, when she, when um, what had actually happened, when I bought her for 7,000, it's a bit of money at the time, mm. um, the vendor came up to me and said, I'll keep half. So, okay, that was half sold. I was happy with that. Took her back and um, uh, ran into a, a bloke called Ian Hickey. And um, he said he'd take the other half and got a few mates into it. So they actually were half of El Segundo when he was sold because they remained half owner of the mayor right through. Mm.
0: Well, just pause for a break on the podcast, Cole. When we come back, we'll uh, review the wonderful career of El Segundo. Mitovite has been producing high quality feeds and supplements for all walks of equine life for almost 40 years. Mitavite has become a household name in racing and breeding circles with products like Athlete, Formula 3 and Breeder, time-tested products in the breeding barn and on the racetrack. 26 Thoroughbred Group 1 winners this season have been on a Mitavite feeding regime. From humble beginnings on the New South Wales central coast, Mitavite has become a world leader in equine nutrition. Infrastructure investment in the production mill and close attention to nutritional science keeps Mitavite at a standard of excellence developed over four decades. Check the website mitavite.com or follow the Mitovite Racing and Breeding Facebook page. The Mitovite brand has earned the respect of horse people all over the world. Well, El Segundo won six of his first nine and a group one at only his ninth start. That was the Caulfield Stakes. He was a very serious horse, wasn't he?
1: He was. Um, a great friend of mine, Danny Burriton, rode him his first run in the race, but he was very delicate and um, he ran second, uh, probably not beaten up, and I turned him out because I thought he wanted more time and then... Not sure what happened with the rider, but the next uh, time he started, he went. uh, Michelle Payne rode him and he went to Cranbourne, won a maiden, broke the track record like Mm. mum. Yeah. And uh, still holds it today. Mm. Um, Anyway, Michelle got off and said, uh, It's got some ability, this horse. I'd like to stay with it, which is okay. Mm. But she was engaged to ride at its next start. And. she fell off on the morning um, of the, the race and broke a scaphoid in her wrist and, you know, and mm. she couldn't ride him for quite some time and, you know, she blames that horse for her not winning a – or that fall from not winning a, a Cox plate. Mm.
0: <laughs> she made up for it later with the Melbourne Cup. She'll have to be satisfied with that. You would think so. <laughs> you decided to have a crack at the Caulfield Cup won by railings. He finished unplaced, but not far away, Col. He was two lengths behind the winner, and there were a few excuses on the day.
1: Yeah uh, my fault uh, bizarrely, I, I hadn't really had much of a discussion with Gouch. Before the race, he knew the horse, you know we knew what we were doing, but he stood in the mounting yard and he said, "I'd like to go forward." And I said, oh, gosh, like he goes back all the time. This is his first run in the mile and a half. You know, why would you want to do that? He just said, oh, you know, might get into a bit of trouble if I get back. Mm. But anyway, um, the name of the horse escapes me, but he was on his outside going down the half mile. Mm. Great, big, strong horse, uh, 600 kilos, and he had – Al trapped on the fence and he couldn't get out. Mm. Gauss said he spent a furlong trying to push him out the way, but he said he was just using up too much energy. Mm. He had to sit and wait for a run and the run didn't come. Uh, I think if I had to let Gats do his own thing, it might have been a different story.
0: Mm. Well, it's good of you to admit it all these years later. Now, Cole, he went to the paddock and following a long spell... He came back for a brilliant preparation. He ran second in the Orange Star, he won the Memsey, he won the Underwood, he ran third in the Yalumba and he was beaten a lip by Fields of Omar in the 2006 Cox Plate. Um,
1: all true. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, not, you know, it was, um, not the worst day of my life except that the broadcaster called him the winner. I think Daryl Raphael was the broadcaster for some reason, mm. and I didn't know a long way from the winning place, I had no idea. But uh, for a few seconds, maybe a minute, you know, I'd won a Cox Plate. But then it wasn't to be. But still, the worst day of my life. I'd run second with my first runner in a Cox Plate. So we, you know, we were still pretty chuffed. Course, done well through 13 Barrier, which was very difficult for him because he's a get-back horse and, you know, you almost get back last from 13 Barrier. Mm. Um, but anyway, as the year went on, we just sort of thought, mm, we've got some unfinished business there and mm. uh, I thought the horse was a much better, much stronger horse the following year. Mm.
0: He ran fourth in the McKinnon after that Cox Plate, beaten a fair way. Had he come to the end of it by then?
2: Well,
1: uh, I think I made a mistake in running him. I thought all week we looked at him. There was no pressure to run him. I thought he was as good as gold. I thought, yeah, no problem. He's taken no ill effect. But things changed on the day when he was at the races. I could just tell that he was not happy. Mm-hmm. He was not himself. And I almost scratched him, but the the – You know, the signs are pretty vague, you know. You can't say he's sore or, you know, he's lame or, you know, something like that. I just had this gut feeling that that he was not quite right. He wasn't himself on the day and Mm. uh, he ran like that. But funnily enough, he loved uh, the Ori star. he ran in that. He loved it uh, down the straight at Flemington, but he never went well in the 2,000 metres at Flemington. He mm. never, never showed his true form and I don't know why.
0: Mm. You've got some interesting sound effects there, Colin, in the background. I oh, thought sorry. I heard a motorbike uh, kick over yeah, there a, a minute ago. I, I, just
1: finished having a bit of breakfast in a cafeteria <laughs> here. I'll walk away from it.
0: <laughs> no, it's okay. No problem. Now, and despite the fact that Darren Gauchi had won seven races on El Segundo, including two Group 1s, there was discontent among the owners, and you had the unenviable job of telling the gouch he'd be replaced next preparation. That was one of the hardest things you've ever had to do.
1: Certainly, the case Johnny. Um, gouch, I'd known the since he was fourteen. I actually went to his parents and see to see if I could apprentice him, mm. but they decided to go to the great apprentice trainer Frank King. Mm. But anyway, Gouch's birthday is on the 26th of December, and around about that week around Christmas, the owners informed me that they they just, no blues with Darren Gouchy, they just wanted to change the luck, mm. and wanted to change the jockey. They didn't have any um, issues with Gouch, they just wanted to change the jockey. And they got hammered for that decision because everyone loves Gouch. Mm. But... You know, they only bought the horse, they only paid all the training fees and, you know, they got hammered for the fact that they would like a, a, a different jockey. So I thought it was pretty unfair. Mm. They do all the work, pay all the bills and they're not allowed to change the jockey. Mm. But Gautier <laughs> turned around when I told him, he punched the brick wall mm. and walked away. I think we were both in tears. Mm. But the jockey's tell me a year later when he won the Cox Plate Gouch was on the bench screaming for him to win.
2: Yeah, love the horse.
1: And, and that's the measure of the man. And I asked him later, why would you do that? And he said, I just wanted him to win. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. And certainly it just speaks volumes for Darren Gouchy, the man, doesn't it? It
1: does, yep. It uh, brings a lump to my throat now I was thinking about
0: it. Mm. Damien Oliver rode El Segundo in four starts next prep for two wins. The Ore Stakes uh, ran third in the Futurity out of a place in the Australian Cup. Then the horse went for a spell. Oliver rode him in the Ori Star in which he ran third. And then Damien saw fit to jump off.
1: Yeah. Well, there was a horse going around and there was not much between them. Tony Vassell trained uh Alström's brother called Harada Sun. he's a pretty mm. good horse mm. and uh Coolmore disported him and I think they persuaded not sure if there was a paper bag involved mm. <laughs> persuaded Ollie to uh to go and ride Harada Sun. and he he actually didn't have much luck in the cox plate he had the lead which was a bit unusual from a difficult barrier and he didn't have a lot of luck but anyway I'd uh uh you know had to make a decision when ollie surprisingly jumped off but um i'd seen this cool bloke ride for moody Mm. i thought you know this bloke won't get rattled with the with the cox plate and we engaged uh luke nolan
0: yeah yeah cool hand luke
1: But it was a different story. The horse was a better horse and uh, Mm. instead of having drawn 13 and make it really hard from last, he drew about six and jumped up on the pace third or fourth, you know, Mm. instead of having to make a lot of ground from last Mm. and a much better barrier and a much stronger horse that year.
0: Mm. He beat Wonderful World and Harada's son ran third, which would have uh, generated mixed feelings in Damien Oliver, I'd imagine. (laughs) Now, I notice um, Luke, did Luke get time, Col, after that cox plate? He was charged with careless riding. Yes,
1: yes, he got time. He got time.
0: Mm.
1: He, um, I think he you know, threw caution to the wind in the straight and ran in and interrupted uh, Bart's horse and got a bit of time. But funnily enough, I don't think he worried about it too much.
0: No, no. No, well, the Highland fling would have been a healthy one, I'd imagine. <laughs> Col, he didn't race again for 14 months. What happened there?
1: Bone tendon.
0: Oh.
1: Yeah. Um funnily enough, the mayor, Palace Verdos, won the baggot mm. and Darren's brother Mick Gouti had retired and he was looking after my horses at the time. I jumped on a plane to go to New Zealand. And um, you know, we were blown away with the fact that Danny Broton had just just won the baggot with about fifty seven. Mm. Um but Mick rang me to say that the mayor had sustained a bow tendon and we tried to get it going but we couldn't. And funnily enough, she had about six foals and eventually I think everyone suffered a bow tendon.
0: Goodness me. Yeah. Mm. Hereditary. <laughs>
1: yeah, I didn't you know, the penny didn't drop for some time until the same owners kept owning the next four or five progeny and you know, I'd ring them up and they your horse's got a bow tendon and they'd say, Well that's another one.
0: Yeah, goodness. Me. Yeah.
1: It just happened to nearly everyone.
0: one. Mm. He eventually broke down in the George Ryder stakes at Rose Hill and he was still beaten only four lengths.
1: Yeah, that's not a mistake. we were between runs and he'd run in the new market and that bizarre new market where, you know, the horrendous storm came in and, you know, mm. There's a funny thing about that new market that um, there was this giant black sky and it was heading towards the the race and I think they completed the race and then all of a sudden the heavens opened up and you know the hailstones were six inches thick on the ground and horses couldn't stand up they were mm-hmm. falling all over the place and it was a horrific storm but you know we couldn't work it out because I, I think the sectionals are something like the last two in about twenty three and a half, and mm-hmm. we couldn't work it out. But the theory goes that first, second and third were all stallions yeah. and the field hid behind these three stallions in front. Goodness, so mate. whether that's right or not, but, uh, you know, there's got to be something going on when they run the last two and about 23 and a half in a new market.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> anyway, yeah, bizarre. Um, yeah, it was a bit, but anyway – uh it wasn't much for him except for the rider. I took him up to Sydney. He worked on the course proper. He hated it. And uh, he hung all the way on a gallop. And I just hoped that he'd learned a bit by going around that way. It was his only gallop before the race. Mm. Craig Williams rode him, and uh, he went round on one rein. And when he came back, he bowed the other tended. Oh, dear. So, was the end of it
0: he didn't deserve that fate, did he
1: no but um you know we weren't you know the signs were there before the race but we're just hoping he didn't handle it his first track gallop and Mm. he might have learned a bit but he just hated that way of going Mm. he'd actually gone that way of going at caulfield occasionally didn't seem to worry him but on the on the true racetrack it was a disaster Mm. so he was retired and uh, one of the owners had a friend at um, scone uh, Craig up there at Amarino, mm-hmm. and he's been up there ever since. He's got 10 colts that he's telling him how to be a racehorse, and he's living the yeah. life of Riley. Beautiful. Beautiful paddock, looks mm-hmm. great, looks about 10 years old.
0: Yeah, and he's I drove 20, up there Colt. About, I think he's yeah, turned I drove 20.
1: Up there, mm-hmm. yeah, I drove up there about a year ago mm-hmm. and uh, had a few carrots in my back pocket, <laughs> and he came straight over to me, knew, obviously knew me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I think it might have been the carrot, really. Um, But (laughs) he looked fantastic and he's got a life of Riley there. He's got all these babies around him that he's bossing around and uh, he does look fantastic.
0: Great news. A happy ending for El Segundo. I don't think you were overly excited at the end of 2006 when a New Zealand-bred gelding by the name of Ista Karim arrived at your place from Adelaide. He'd had 35 starts for six wins and a third to exalted time in an Adelaide Cup. He was at least six then, Cole, might have been seven.
1: Philip Nemi owned a horse and uh, he came to stay at Lord Lodge. Um, it was a racing bed and breakfast at the time. People used to book in there and then go across the Caulfield. Um, Jackie would organise everything, you know, lunch and mm. tickets and They'd just walk across around the road and they will be back home. So there was a lot of people in those days that went to the races. But anyway, Philip and Amy, it happened that uh, his trainer had decided to relocate to England and he didn't know what to do with his horse with El Segundo. Sorry, with Eska Karim. Mm. But anyway, when Jackie had finished with him uh, overnight the next morning, she told me that I've got you a horse to train. And, oh, that's good. What's it called? Esker Karim. We had a look at it. He had run third in the Adelaide Cup. Mm. Um, anyway, he took us on a nice journey, um, culminating in winning the Sydney Cup. But it was, it was not. It's a pretty dark day because, you know, by then Jackie was in care. Yes, of course. was, um, and uh, you know, I think Clary looked after the horse. I just flew up on the day and mm. flew back and took the trophy to. Uh, the care where Jackie was, and the nurses told me, well, we knew that Jackie had lost the ability to speak, mm. but she listened to the race, and there was a giant scream. Yeah, that it frightened everyone in the hospital. But that <laughs> was that was uh, her reaction to Ishikura winning Sydney Cup.
0: And well, she'd played a major part in it, hadn't she, in the lead up?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She she certainly got me the horse, and uh, she'd worked on Philip Nemi and. Mm. Um you know, I, I hadn't even met him when next morning she walked out and said, I've got you a horse.
0: Mm. He was obviously a sound old boy, Cole.
1: Look, he was, he was a lovely horse, tried very hard. Um, the owner was a bit paranoid about going forward. He was forever, there's no pace here, you have to go forward. And we did that for a while, but it just didn't suit the horse. And he was in a... Three thousand meter race at Rooney Valley, and again, that was there's no pace here. You got to go forward. But I sort of stood over him a bit mm. and said, "No, we're going back." Mm. And he won easily. Mm. And then we're in Danny Burton rode him in the Chairman's. Uh, he didn't get beaten that far. And Danny said he cut a leg off, or maybe two legs, to ride him fifty three and a half. I think it was in the Sydney Cup. But uh. No hope in my our opinion, but. Mm. Craig got on him, and Craig was in the mounting yard. And I said, "Have you seen these horses' replay?" And typical. Craig said, "Oh yeah, I've watched every run he's ever had in his life," mm. which is typical, Craig. Yeah. And I said, uh, "And the owner, you know, no pace here. You got to go forward." And Craig was a bit that way too, but I just said, "You are going back. Mm. Just go back." Oh. And uh, that was a way to ride the horse. He was a different horse if you gave him a chance.
0: Another second-hand horse you took to Group 1 level was Blue Tigeroo. I think he was a Class 3 when you got him. You won six races with him, including four in town, and then you slipped him across Bass Strait for the Hobart Cup, and Damien went with him.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, he, he he was an improving horse. He kept uh, coping and, and improving, and I had two runners in the – in the Hobart Cup, a uh, tough old horse called Ruber John that drew about 16. Danny Burriton rode it. He was on the fence running third as they went out of the straight the first time. Unbelievable mm. ride. And I felt very sorry for him after the race because Blue Tiger, superior horse, just was able to cut him down. But mm. I don't know how Danny ever got in third on the fence going out of the straight the first time for mm. 16 barrier, but it's a ride of the century. And unfortunately, he ran into a better horse on the day.
0: Mm. He had a little freshen uh, before running a nice fifth in the Australian Cup, won by Pompeii Ruler. And then you took him to Sydney for the Group One BMW, and Damien Oliver was keen to get back on.
1: Um, yeah, that's true. It was mainly the owners that had so much faith in the horse. I was sort of enamoured with El Segundo, and I, you know, I knew El Segundo was a better horse and. I might have downplayed Blue Tiger a little bit, but the owners were very bullish and they insisted that we pay 50 grand to run in the BMW. They Mm. thought he was up to it and Mm. they were right. Mm. Um, Great ride by Ollie. Hardway went around a horse and uh, was able to get money.
0: He uh, then, of course, ran in the Sydney Cup. Um, and finished not that far away, did he? Finished just behind the place, Gettys.
1: Um, Yeah, I just forget. Uh, I think running in the Melbourne Cup was the end of that horse. Uh, mm. You know, he's, he tried very hard, and the Melbourne Cup was too much of a stretch for him, mm. and uh, he, he was knocked around a little bit by the run in the Melbourne Cup. He just, you mm. know, they were too good for him. He tried very hard, and I think... You know, everyone gets carried away with a runner in the Melbourne Cup, but I don't think he should have won or should have run in that race. It just didn't do him any good.
0: Mm. He snuck one more decent race towards the end of his career with Nash Rewilla in the saddle. He won the Canberra Cup.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, maybe we were sort of able to get him back somewhere near he was. Um, yeah, we're happy to get up there into to Canberra, but uh, any. Did us all proud but um i still think the melbourne cup cup took a bit out of him
0: you've used the services of some outstanding jockeys over the years uh, we've mentioned a few already craig williams Damien oliver darren Gouchy, luke nolan and danny brereton for whom you always had tremendous respect danny suffered dreadful neck and back injuries in a fall at moonee valley about 12 years ago, they said he wouldn't walk again, Cole, but he has, and he continues to amaze family and friends.
1: Funny enough, I'm I'm about six foot away from Danny. Goodness I um me. I rang him and said we're having some breakfast and not far away. Come down, and he's just arrived, and um, I've been for a two-hour walk to get to uh, our little breakfast place, and he's waiting for me. Uh, He's going to drive me home. So uh, mm. Danny is um, doing his best. He can walk. But at one stage, I told him he'd never walk again. Mm. But uh, he can walk and with the aid of a stick. And uh, he certainly drive and get around. But it's been a long time and um, an absolute tragedy. Uh, great friend, great rider. And probably coming to his end of his career as a jockey and, you know, just put everything to stop. And he. Mm. Hasn't been able to do much since.
0: Mm. Colin, please give Danny Brereton my most heartfelt regards.
1: I certainly will. Certainly will, John.
0: You've had a string of handy horses in recent years with Vacillator, one of your favourites. He's won five races, amazingly, all of them at Flemington, although one of his best runs was the second of the Autumn Sun in the Caulfield Guineas, and by golly, it would have taken a horse and a half to beat the autumn sun that day.
1: Um, yeah, Best cost twenty grand. Um, I was in Vietnam playing a bit of golf with Rod and a few other blokes, and Rod had uh, seen that I'd bought a, a cheap yearling, and uh, he asked me what I was doing with it. I said, oh, I don't know. You know, it's twenty grand. I'll probably try and keep it and trade it. But he said, "No, these blokes will take it." So all the blokes around the table, mm. sort of about ten of them, sort of sort and put their heads down and said, "Oh, not another horse, you know. We've all got enough." But anyway, mm. they all got in and they've had some great fun. Mm. He's earned eight hundred and fifty grand, and we're we're very keen for him to win a million. We think twenty thousand dollar purchase that wins a million would be pretty good.
0: Mm. Now you say you've already uh placed all of the horses that you had in work at Packenham. where has vacillator gone
1: there's a lady called lisa jones at Somerville on the beach and uh, i met her a couple of years ago and she pre-trained vacillator on the beach for a couple of weeks and then maybe uh, between runs he might go down there for um a week or a few days to recuperate she'd actually worked for Tony Noonan for 15 years and she took Altensia to the UAE and I think she mm. took it on her own for a while mm. but um anyway I thought uh I thought you know she knew what she was doing and uh didn't have much you know firepower there you know couple of thousand dollar horses she was trying to do the best with yes. but I just thought that he's getting a bit old and he appreciate loved the beach and so I convinced the owners to send Vacillator down to her and he's had one run, sort of 1,200 metres, where he doesn't do any good. Um, it's always too short for him, but I'm sure she'll get the best out of him.
0: You've always enjoyed a round of golf and uh, I know you intend to further that interest now. You're not long over a shoulder reconstruction, which puts your golf on the back burner for a while, but somebody told me you were sighted the other day getting some coaching?
1: <laughs> well, I, I need it. <laughs> I enjoy golf and I'm absolutely no good at it. That, you know, it's not the end of the world. You don't have to be single-figure player to enjoy it. And, yeah, I'm pretty hopeless. I keep trying and I have, you know, I've said a couple of times that I put several pros' sons through university paying paying um, tuition fees, but uh, all to no avail.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Kyle, you've never trained a big team, but you've maintained an excellent strike rate all the way through. You've had the respect of fellow trainers. You've had the respect of owners, jockeys, and administrators. You can't do much better than that, mate. Congratulations on a grand career, and uh, we wish you a long, happy, and healthy retirement, Colin Little. Thanks very much, Johnny. Pleasure you for being to talking to you. Thanks, Cole, on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Trainers strive to have horses spot on for race day. Fuel cells up the right mental state, the right fitness levels. Equally important is the horse's capacity to recover quickly from racing and track work. The aim is to give owners every opportunity to win optimum prize money by keeping a horse in training for as long as possible. High Gain Recuperate is a powerful blend of electrolytes, B Group Vitamins and Vitamin E in paste form which can be administered after fast work and in the days leading up to a race to assist recovery. 30ml of Recuperate drawn from the 500ml bulk pack is the economical alternative to individual electrolyte and vitamin paste syringes. High Gain Recuperate powers performance and recovery. Visit the High Gain website and use promo code johntap.racing to receive 15% off your next Recuperate purchase.